This past week, I received the following question from a man who was with us last Sunday. He wrote, Chuck, I really did get a lot out of your message today on fear, but should I be worried about this email that I received? Which reads as follows. Don't go to the bathroom on November 10th. CIA intelligence reports that a major plot is planned for that day. Anyone who sits on a toilet seat on November 10th will be bitten on the rear end by an alligator. It says reports indicate that organized groups of alligators are planning to rise up into unsuspecting American toilet bowls and bite Americans while they're doing their dirty work. I usually don't send reports like this, but I got this information from a reliable source. It came from a friend of a friend of a friend whose cousin is dating this girl, whose brother knows this guy, whose wife knows this lady, whose husband buys hot dogs from this guy who knows a shoeshine guy who shines the shoes of a mailroom worker who works in the CIA building. And he apparently overheard two guys talking in the bathroom about alligators, and he came to the conclusion that we're going to be attacked. So this must be true. You know, and I hear and, and, I, and I, I see things like this, and I realize that, you know, nothing but the truth can set people free from the bondage of misinformation. Nothing but the truth can set us free. For example, there have been many so-called liberation movements throughout human history. Today, we're in the midst of a war to free the Afghan people from the oppression of the Taliban regime and the world from the terrorist grips of men such as Osama bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda network. It says the goal of such campaigns is to free people from oppression, inequality, and also to elevate them to some higher social status. And it's only then that proponents argue that people can be fulfilled and enjoy life to the fullest. While I'm certainly in agreement with our involvement as a nation to fight and hopefully constrain such evil, there's a much larger picture that we must never, ever forget. No movement that rearranges people's social status while leaving their hearts untransformed is truly liberating. No movement that rearranges people's social status while leaving their hearts untransformed is truly liberating. There's only one way to experience genuine freedom, and that is to have a heart set free from the bondage of sin and of death. The Lord Jesus Christ expressed that truth in John 8.32 when he said that you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He said the word of God is truth. He prayed to his Father that we as believers would be sanctified or separated by that truth. Thy word is truth. Such freedom does not come through human effort. The prophet Jeremiah asked rhetorically, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Jeremiah 13, 23. It says the radical transformation from spiritual death to eternal life, from darkness to light, from Satan's kingdom to God's, comes only to those who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, according to John 1.13. Only through the complete transformation of a new birth does total fulfillment come. Jesus Christ said that I came that I would bring you life and bring it to you more abundantly. It says, there are therefore only two types of people in the world. There are those, according to the word of God, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set free from the law of sin and death. And those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians chapter 2. There are only the slaves of unrighteousness and the slaves of righteousness. There are those who are alive to God and dead to sin. And then there are those who are alive to sin and dead to God. There are only two types of people in the world. I like to put it in simple terms that I understand. You're either a saint or you ain't. You're either in or you're out. You're either alive or you're dead. And there's no middle ground. The women's liberation movement is an example of a social effort that promises freedom and can't deliver anything except bondage to sin. 
We'll talk more in a minute about that. But in the portraits of two women that are found in the book of Acts, chapter 16, if you've got your Bible, turn with me. If you've got someone sitting next to you that has one, read along with them. But in Acts chapter 16, we find examples of both freedom and bondage. Lydia, the first woman whose name is mentioned, is a Gentile convert in Europe. She was a truly liberated woman. The nameless demon-possessed slave girl typifies those enslaved to sin and to Satan. But in Acts chapter 16, we find... A tale of two women. Acts 16, starting with verse 11, we read these words. It says, Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Semithrace, and on the day following to Neapolis. From there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, excuse me, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And it happened as they were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you, the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. And he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Before we're introduced to these two ladies, a little background is in order. As this section is introduced, you'll notice that the word is there, that is there, is therefore. And we need to always ask as we go through it, what's it there for? And the, and the connective thought is, is that it connects that which we've just studied and that we've just read to that which about, is about to be introduced to us. So it's a bridge, so to speak, to help us understand the transition that's taking place. We have this bridge that leads us from verses 6 through 10 to now this section starting with verse 11. If you recall from the last time we're together, Paul and, uh, Paul and, and uh, Silas and Timothy and Luke were visiting the churches that Paul had gone to on his first missionary journey where he had shared the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, where many had come to faith and believed, and his concern for them led him to go back to these cities to find out how they were doing, how they were growing in their faith, what was going on in their lives. And we know from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that he had a heart for people. He wanted to make sure that they were progressing and moving forward in their faith. As we go through this section, you'll notice that he was going to go into Bithynia, into Myasia. But the the Spirit of God, in verse 7 it says, the Spirit of Jesus didn't permit them to go. And so God, in his leading, took them from a direction that they were starting to go. And he closed the door. We're not told how God closed the door. And this is really important for all of us as we try to discern God's leading in our life. You know, God, what is it you want me to do? Where is it you want me to go? Anybody that's ever struggled with that question, and all of us have, if we're concerned about that God's in something that we're about to participate or to partake in, that we want to make sure that God's hands in it. And so when we ask the question, God, how do we know which way to go? Oftentimes what we need to do is very simple. In the revealed word of God, if what God is saying doesn't contradict with the direction that we sense God leading us, then we know that God isn't going to contradict himself. So we search the scripture to find out, God, are you leading me in a direction or is this just something that I want to do or even something the enemy wants me to do to somehow or another circumvent the plan of God? We search the word of God for truth. We pray and we ask God for wisdom. James says, if any man lacks wisdom, and we all do, that we're to seek of God who gives generously and above reproach. We're to seek God and get wisdom from Him and discernment as those who have genuinely come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The presence of the Holy Spirit within our life guides us into truth and doesn't guide us into error or deceit. And so we're very cautious, those of us who are married. We've got our spouse that we're to bounce things off of to see if God's in something or not. And together we begin to move in a direction that God is leading. We don't know how God closed the door, but I'll tell you this, oftentimes we get very disappointed 
disappointed when God closes one door because we have our hearts set on the direction that we want to go. And there's many things that I learned from this as far as the disappointment that could have been there because they were going, they were excited about the fact that they knew which direction that they were going to go and yet at the same time every door that they tried to go through God continued to close until he had them right where he wanted them. And from that, I learned that it's comforting to know that even the apostles were not always clear as to God's will for their lives and for their ministry. Perhaps you find yourself in the midst of such a struggle today. There's comfort in knowing that we don't always clearly know every moment in our life whether this is where God wants us or not. But as we seek His will, as we seek His direction, as we pray, as we seek wisdom, there's safety in a multitude of godly counselors. God begins to unveil His plan to us, and we continue to move. The second thing is God's timing is always perfect. It's always perfect. God is never early, and He's never late. He's always perfect. He's always right on time. See, in in chapters 18 and 19, we begin to find out that the gospel does go east. But it wasn't God's timing for it to happen then. God led him and his party to go west. Also, closed doors always lead to open doors. If we keep following the Lord's direction in our life. This past week, we went and watched a football game at a local high school of a friend whose son was playing football for that team. And as I stood talking to our friend, she said, isn't it amazing, just miraculous almost what God does? Her son was now at that school because three or four years ago, her daughter, who had been attending another high school, was cut from their soccer team. And as devastating as it was at that time, God used that and closed that door to move them to another area for another opportunity. And as those opportunities came up, not only did she benefit, but also her brother, who came along later, would benefit as well. See, you know, if we continue to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, as the Word of God tells us to in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge Him. We know that He shall make our paths straight or He shall direct our paths. To understand that when a door closes, that you know what, it's only closed because God has allowed it to close or even God has closed it Himself. We see that even when it comes to being oppressed by the enemy in our life through the story and the the account historical of a man whose name was Job, who was attacked by Satan himself, and God allowed it to take place for God's purposes and God's glory. If we trust in the Lord with all of our heart, as doors are closing in each of our lives, never doubt that God is in absolute control of all things. All things. I had a friend who played on the Rams, and he, had me, he asked me if I would come to meet with him several years ago. He was engaged to be married. And the gal that he was marrying was, Miss, uh, was a former Miss USA. She was absolutely gorgeous, just a gorgeous, talented woman. Both of them were believers. Both of them loved the Lord. And he said, Chuck, i got to meet with you. I said, what's the matter? He said, well, you know, Shannon and I are, getting, are engaged, and we're getting married in six months. And last night when we had dinner, I began to share with her that God put on my heart to minister to uh, college students. When I get out of professional football, I really have a heart for college kids and to be able to, to share them, with them the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in secular campuses that bombard them with a bunch of nonsense and lies. And I believe God was leading me there. He says, and I began to share that with her. And I was all excited, you know, just unveiling my heart to her. And she looked at me and said, I don't want to do that. And he said, well, what, what, what do you mean? She said, well, it's obvious God has gifted me and given me talents and abilities that I can use in his glory. And I moved to L.A. just so I could get involved in, in Hollywood and maybe get involved in modeling or acting or something where I can use the talents God's given me. I don't want to move back to Louisiana. And he looked at me and said, what am I going to do? And I said, I'll ask you one question. What's the greatest commandment? And he said, well, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and that you have no other gods before Him. So that's, that's great. So now I guess the next question I got to ask is this. Who do you love more, God or Shannon? And he looked at me and he went like this. I knew you were going to say that. He said, I knew it. We're at this restaurant. Everybody in the restaurant's looking at us. He's going, I knew you were going to say that. I should have never met with you. I knew you were going to say that. And I was like, what did I say? I know, I knew it. Don't, don't say that now. We, we leave. And it was a rather interesting evening, as you can imagine. Um, so about three or four weeks later, he called me and said, Chuck, I want to let you know that we broke off our engagement. I said, wow, 
I said, I'll be praying for you. Got traded to the Broncos. Ended up going back to Louisiana, which is his hometown every offseason. He called me a year later and said, Chuck, because I got the greatest news for you. I said, what's that? He goes, well, I was back home, and, and uh, I was at the campus at Baton Rouge and uh, LSU, and I met this gal, and, you know, she was there ministering to college students, and I was there, and we start to talk, we start to share, and the next thing, oh, anyway, we're getting married, I just want to let you know. <laughs> and he said this, he goes, can you believe that? And I said, you mean, can I believe that if you commit your desires to the Lord, do you commit your ways to the Lord, that he gives you the desires of your heart? Yeah, I could believe that. You mean, if I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that everything else in life is added unto you? Yeah, I can believe that. You mean, if I trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding, in all my ways acknowledging him, he will set my path straight? I said, yeah, I can believe that. A year later called, had their first child. Four years later called, had their second child. We still keep in touch to some degree. I don't know where he is right now, but throughout the years he would call and just kind of share what a wonderful thing it is to be in the will of God. As we look through this, we notice that they logically pursued God's will. They knew they were called in verse 10 to go and share the gospel in Macedonia. They had seen a vision of a man who was crying out for help. It's been said that nothing makes a man strong like a call for help. And Paul and Silas, Timothy and Dr. Luke, as he explains that we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And it's in verses 11 through 15 that we are introduced to what I'm going to call a truly liberated woman. In verses 11 through 16, we're introduced to a woman who is truly liberated. Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Semithrace, and on the day following to Neapolis. As we learn, the connective thought is, is that they were called to go to Europe to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So immediately they obeyed the leading of God. Therefore, it was, it was a no-brainer. If God's leading you in a direction, follow Him. Immediately, without reservation, without hesitation. He knew, the guy that I had lunch with, knew what he needed to do even before we met, but God just used our meeting to confirm in his heart what he already knew he needed to do. I knew you were going to say that. And praise God that I said exactly what the Word of God tells us to share with one another. Because he had already known in his heart. We've got to be very careful in the counsel that we give to one another. Oftentimes we want to tell people what we think that they want to hear instead of telling them what God wants them to hear. And God had already affirmed that in his heart because the Spirit of God, bearing not only witness with our spirit that we're children of God, but the Spirit of God is also our teacher who guides us into all truth. And reminds us of the truth of the Word of God. He knew what he needed to do. He just needed somebody to come alongside him and say, You know what? It's going to be okay to obey God in your life. Is it going to be easy? No. Do you think there was tears? Absolutely. Do you think there was an emotional roller coaster ride? Exactly. I talked to a woman not too long ago who knew what she needed to do in her relationship with her boyfriend. And she made that stand because she needed to be pleasing to God in her life. And she trusted with Him. She committed her ways to Him, knowing and hoping and praying that He would give her the desires of her heart. But God demands obedience and not sacrifice. He wants us to be obedient in our innermost parts of our life. He knows our heart and He wants to set us free from the oppression and the bondage of sin. And there's a point where we've just got to trust God and step out in faith because we walk by faith and not by sight. But faith based upon what? Based upon the Word of God. Who did He love more? God honored Him as He honors each one of us who step out in faith and obedience to the Word of God. I believe that faith is obedience in spite of the perceived consequences. When you read Hebrews chapter 11, you'll notice that every one of those men and women that were there that stepped out in faith did so despite the perceived consequence of following God in their life. They must obey God rather than man. And so must we. 
As we look at this, they immediately set sail. They knew the direction that they needed to go. And from Troas to Neapolis, the port of Philippi was a distance of about 150 miles. As it took them two days to make the journey, they had to be going, man, God's hands on us because, man, we are making good time. You ever been that way where it's like, man, we're making good time. The hand of God must be on us. And the reason we know it's good time because later on in their return trip, it took them five days to make the same trip that it took them two days. In this particular case, they had to be going smooth sailing, God's hands in it. Man, we got, we got open seas. And so they were sailing. It started out on a positive note. Philippi lay 10 miles inland from Neapolis. And, uh, and as we're introduced to the city of, uh, city of uh, Philippi, it's important that we understand a little bit of the history. It was an ancient town having been renamed in 356 B.C. by Philip II of Macedon. He named it after himself. They had a tendency of doing that in those days. And uh, with the expansion of the Roman Empire, it became a Roman colony in 167 B.C. Its greatest claim to fame came from the fact that it happened to be the place where the armies of Mark Anthony and Octavius defeated Brutus and Cassius in the decisive battle of the Second Roman Civil War in 42 B.C. For its part in this battle, Philippi was awarded uh, the status of a Roman colony and answered directly to the Roman Empire, which is very important as we look at this to understand what the culture was, what the setting was, what was going on in the particular city. The The emperor organized such colonies by ordering Roman citizens specifically retired Roman military officers to go and inhabit those colonies. They were to obey Roman law. They were to be submissive to Roman authority. They were to be honoring to the Roman emperor. And in return for that, of uprooting your family and moving to a colony now, they would be granted certain political appointments and they wouldn't have to pay any taxes. So there was a trade-off there. Hey, you know what? We need a Roman presence in our colonies to make sure that the people that were there know who they are to submit to. And as an incentive, we're going to send you there, we're going to give you a political appointment of some sort, and we'll make sure that all your income is tax-free. So there's a trade-off that was there. This is what was happening in Philippi at the time when Paul and Luke and Silas and Timothy show up on the scene. Now, according to verse 12, look what we have here. It says that uh, they put out, they were there. It says, from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, were staying in the city for some days. This is important. Because it helps us to understand an approach to reaching others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They knew they were called to go tell people about Jesus. But they didn't do it right away. Now, to me, that teaches me something about our approach to other people. They had just been on a trip. They had just made a journey. They were probably tired, a little cranky, a little miserable, like some of us are. Not all of us, but some of us don't travel well. And so the last thing you want to do is go into a situation where you're cranky and miserable and start to, hey, have you heard about Jesus? You know, it's kind of like, you know, the attitude, you know, it's like, it was like when I first became a Christian and one of our first assignments in our growing process was that we would be responsible for children's church. How did I know that that wasn't a ministry that God was leading me to? I couldn't stand the kids. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, you know, that, that, that's not conducive to building up the kingdom of God. I mean, when you got the kids tied to a tree out in the back till their parents show up, you know, with duct tape on their mouth. No, I didn't do that, but I thought about it. I'm just kind of going, you know, this isn't where God wants us. Get your kid out of here. Gee, and wipe its nose, too, would you please? It's like they're always asking. So it's kind of like, you know, there's times where you kind of, kind of you follow God's lead and go, nah, you know what, this isn't going to work out. But um, fortunately, um, in, in this particular case, they waited. They got a better frame of mind, better frame of spirit. They, they, you know, it was like they were rested up. They also, I believe, they prayed. They prayed for direction. Where do you start when you go into a new city? It's like, okay, where do we go? Where do we start? Who do we talk to first? Uh, what's going to be the approach? They prayed for wisdom. They prayed for strength. They prayed for boldness. And the most important thing, as we'll learn, they prayed that God would open the hearts and the ears of those who would hear the message of Jesus Christ. That God would open their hearts to receive the message. We'll talk more in a minute. We also know that they probably came up with a plan or a strategy. Because it's not enough to know where God wants us to work. We must also know when and how he wants us to work. In verse 13, we're told, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside. 
where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled there. You, got, you know, as you look at this, you go, why did they do that? What was the most logical thing to do? It was the most logical place to start. Everywhere that Paul went, every city that he traveled to, the first thing that he did was what? He went to a synagogue where he would find people who are already open to listen to God's truth. That's why they were there. They were seeking God's truth. They would go and they would speak to that group of people. The problem when they got to Philippi was there was no synagogue. Because there wasn't enough Jewish men. It took ten Jewish men or heads of households to be able to formulate a synagogue. There wasn't enough men in that city to formulate a synagogue. So they knew that if there were any people who were seeking God... If there wasn't a synagogue, they would go to the next available place, which was an open area, a place to pray by a a river or by the sea. Why did they go to a river? Because they knew if there's no synagogue, then if there's anybody in this place who's seeking God, they're going to be out in the river at an open place and they're going to be seeking God there. We're going to go to a river and we'll find out who's there. That's why they went there. It was logical. Oftentimes in life, folks, listen, God's will is very logical and orderly and purposeful. If we're walking with God and he says, why don't you do this, and it doesn't conflict with anything in God's word, then do it. You know, we're always looking for some mystical thing that God's going to make this special revelation and he's already revealed everything we need in the word of God. He's given us the spirit of God in our hearts. there's There's no mystic, there's no magic, there's nothing phenomenal about the fact it's just being obedient to God's leading in our life. They went to the river. And what occurs at this point is nothing short of miraculous because it demonstrates a tremendous change in the heart of the Apostle Paul. Note that the first European audience to hear the gospel were the women who were assembled there. The women who were assembled there. We are told that Paul began, if you look at verse 13 and 14, we were told that Paul began speaking to the women who had assembled. In verse 14, we were told that they responded to the things spoken to them. This is so critical in our understanding because it indicates that as he spoke, how he spoke to them was that he had a conversation with them. He didn't stand in front of them and preach and proclaim. He sat among them and he began to have a conversation with them. As they asked questions, he listened to their questions and he answered them. As they sought truth, he led from the questions that they had to the truth that he was there to reveal. He was sensitive and open to the, to, to the people that were there, to his audience. We must also always be sensitive to the audience that God brings before us. The best thing to do is to allow them to express what it is that they believe or what they think they believe. I had a young man come up to me and said, I got a friend who believes that all religions are the same. What should I say to him? I said, don't say anything to him. Ask him to explain to you what he thinks he believes by making that statement. What do you mean all religions are the same? Allow that person to share with you what's on their heart and then you can begin to listen to what they say and then you can be led to answer based on what they say. If he says all religions are the same and that it's all a bunch of people trying to work their way to heaven to somehow or another please a God that they don't know, then you can say, yeah, well, you know what? That is true about all religions except for it's not true about Christianity. And when they sit and they go, what? What? That type of statement has to lend to a question, well, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is all religions are the same. and All people trying to work their way to heaven, but Christianity is radically totally different. 180 degrees from every other religious organization that tries to work their way into heaven or please some God. Christianity says you can't do that. There's nothing good that you can do. There's no way you can ever please God. And that, you know what, we're lost, hopelessly lost if we're going to try to attempt to reach God that way. Now you've got their interest. Now they start to think, well, well, wait a minute, if that's the case, man, if we're in that deep of trouble, what do we do? Well, the good news is God, he provides the remedy. He sent Jesus Christ to this earth to die upon a cross and raise from the dead. And if we believe him, God says, I've done everything for you. All you need to do is trust and believe in me and my plan and trust in Christ as as your Savior. Wow. From that conversation, you can clearly lead to the gospel. It says that they sat down and conversed with them. So often we don't care what people think. And they know that and they don't care what we think in return. But if you care enough to ask questions, you allow people to to ask you. And then you take that approach to answer. I'll guarantee you that you'll have a dialogue with them. 
and not monotribe. So many of us want to shove the gospel down people's throats that they don't want to hear it because we don't take the time to try to understand what it is that they believe and why they believe it. Why do you think that way? Why do you believe that way? And then begin to challenge him. We're to give an answer, ready defense for the hope that is within us. But as we saw with the, with the, the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip did the same thing. He goes, do you understand what you're reading? No, oh, no, I don't understand this at all. Do you mind if I explain it to you? No, that would be great. See, we need to be sensitive. We need to look at that. It was interesting, and the reason I say this is such a miracle, is that the Pharisees and the rabbis said it was, quote, better that the words of God be burned than delivered to a woman. Can you imagine living in that kind of culture? We see just glimpses of that when we hear about what happens in the Middle East, how women are treated in those countries, how they're abused and oppressed. You know, you've got to get permission. You can't drive. You've got to get permission to be educated. You've got permission to go to the store. All the men had to be removed from the store, as I heard one interview, so that a woman could go in and shop for herself. You know, it was like a list of all these things and the abusive nature that takes place in the world around us towards women and others. And when we look at this, you know, the Pharisees and the rabbis said it was better that the law of God, which they upheld to the highest calling, They were proud of the fact that they were servants of God and ministers of his word. They said, you know what, even as high a calling as it is to serve God by sharing his word, it would be better that we burn the word of God than to share it with a woman. The Pharisees and the rabbis got up on on each day and they prayed this prayer. Thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, slave, or a woman. But that was no longer Paul's philosophy because he'd been born again. From the inside. And in Philippians 3, he said, You know what? I consider all that nonsense that I believed in the past as rubbish for the surpassing value of knowing Christ, my Savior and my Lord. My highfalutin, high standard that I had, this high society calling that I was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, upholder of the law, and everything that I did. He goes, You know what? I count it all rubbish now that I know Jesus. And he demonstrated it by meeting with women and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, so many women, particularly the women's liberation movement, you know, they, caric- they, they, they have Paul as some kind of a caricature that somehow or another he's a male chauvinist. And, and uh, you know, they, they reject his teaching on the role of a woman. But he wasn't prejudiced at all. And his eagerness to share the gospel with women defied the social culture of its day. He loved women. He knew that they were as we all are. Sinners who need a Savior. Peter would later write that our wives, gentlemen, are fellow heirs of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and to treat them with respect and dignity. That was mind-blowing to a culture that had nothing to do with women. And for Paul to stay in the midst of these women and share, them, share with them the love of God shows the transformation of a heart that's been born again. He had a great appreciation for women. He valued the ministry of women. We see it in the life of Phoebe. We see it in the life of those whom he mentions very boldly in his letter to the Romans that helped him along the way. Verse 14 introduces us to Lydia. Lydia is a, a woman from the city of Thyatira. It was the site of one of the seven churches of Revelation. Lydia may have been the name of her business, for it was derived from the city or the root word of Thyatira. She was a purple fabric. Purple fabrics were made. Uh, we're told that she was a seller of purple fabrics. Purple fabrics were made um, from the dye that came from the glands of a shellfish and also the root of the matter plant. Uh, was, they were very expensive. Purple garments uh, were worn by royalty and the wealthy and selling such was a very profitable business. You know, Lydia was kind of the, uh, our modern day version of a woman who owns a St. John's knit shop or store or um, Louis Vuitton. Or, the wonderful thing was I asked my wife this morning, I said, hey, do you know any really expensive, you know, women's clothing or accessory shops that I can throw out to show how in tune I am with what women are all about? And she said, no. And I said, praise God. <laughs> Love it. It's beautiful. Ah, it's great. So we had to ask Mary. (laughs) Excuse me. But anyway, so that's who she was. That's what she was all about, you know. And, uh, you know, but, serious note, it wasn't her social... 
her woman, nor was it her education or even her wealth, her large home that she lived in, that made her a truly liberated woman. She was truly liberated because she was born again. She was freed from the bondage of sin and the yoke of its condemnation. And it's in this passage we learn of, very clearly, the liberation of Lydia. And I want to share with you three sequential aspects of her salvation that are true of every person who has been born again. Number one, notice, she was a worshiper of God. We're told that she was a worshiper of God in verse 14. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, was a worshiper of God. The phrase tells us that she had already turned from idols to worship the one true God. In fact, the Shema recited at each of their prayer meetings, when these ladies would meet, the first thing that they would do was recite the Shema, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And that's how their meetings began. The Lord is our God and the Lord is one. There is no other God. We live in a world today that has a multiplicity of gods. Pray to your God. Pray to this God. Pray to that God. But understand very clearly, there is only one God. And his identity is known through human history. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of Moses He is the God of Joseph. He is the God of David. There is only one God. She turned her back on all the other so-called gods that she was introduced to. And she was a worshiper of the one true God. There are no others. And you shall have no other gods before me. Lydia's seeking was the first step of her spiritual liberation. Yet she, like all sinners, did not seek God on her own until he sought her. God sought her out. Romans 3.11, Paul says, There's none who understands. There's no one who seeks God. No one comes to me, declared the Lord Jesus Christ, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Her conversion and those of Cornelius and the Ethiopian eunuch illustrate a very important principle. It's often asked, what about people who have never heard the gospel? And the answer is given to us very clearly right here. God will reveal the fullness of the gospel to those whom he causes to honestly seek him. John 6.37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. The point is very clear. God will never turn away the seeking heart. Whosoever calls upon me will not be disappointed. Whoever seeks after God will not be disappointed. Not only was she a worshiper of God, but she was listening to the words. She was listening to what he was saying. She was intent on hearing truth. You know, there are many who hear the gospel without ever really listening to it. They're like Paul's companions on the Damascus Road who, although they heard the sound, they didn't understand the voice. They didn't understand what was being said. They're like many who come to church not understanding a thing that's said. And many of us who share with, with others, we look at them and we see a glazed look on their face like, don't you understand what I just said? And the answer is self-explanatory, no, they do not. And the question that you've got to ask yourself is why? Because they have ears they cannot hear and because they have eyes they cannot see. They are blind to the things of God, nor do they understand what is being spoken. And the reason for it is very simple. And Jesus gives the explanation in John 8, 43, where he says this. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. The reason folks can't hear is that their problem is not in their ears, but their problem is in their hearts. We have a friend who is a doctor, and oftentimes the symptoms are just masking what the root problem is. And he'll say, the reason that this hurts is because this is really what's wrong with you. And I go, how in the world does that tie hand in hand? You know, heart and and hear and heart follow one another in in the dictionary. And there's a reason for it. The reason people can't hear the gospel is because their heart is far from God. They don't seek God. 
They seek an excuse for their behavior. Jesus said the reason you don't hear spiritual truth is because you want to do evil. You don't want to hear the truth. You don't want to be liberated from sin and its consequences. You don't want to seek God. You want to seek an excuse so you can keep living the life that you want to live in rebellion against the authority of God in your life and therefore you can't hear the saving words of the gospel. She wasn't like that. She was open. She was listening. She wanted set free. She had more than a woman in her culture could ever dream of having. She was respected. She was wealthy. She had a business. She was a career woman. She had a big house. She had everything the world had to offer. And you know what? She had nothing. She would be a truly liberated woman as far as a women's liberation movement is concerned. But she knew she had nothing because her heart was far from God. Any movement, as I said, that elevates the social status of people without ever addressing the issue of the heart is not a liberating movement whatsoever, but merely continues to lead people into oppression. She was liberated because she had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says that the Lord opened her heart. She could only understand and receive the gospel because God made it apparent to her what the gospel was. Understand this very clearly. Salvation is all of God. It is not of us. It is all of God. The reason that you or I could receive Jesus Christ as our Savior is only because God revealed to us who He is and made that known to us. And how do I know that? Ephesians 2 tells us that we are dead in our sins. Dead people don't know nothing. Think about it. might not like the English there, but think about it. Dead people don't know anything. And it's only as God gives life to a dead person can the dead person then respond to the eternal life that is being offered. Salvation is all of God. The means to the end. Salvation, the end result, God still also provides the means. And the means was what? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ and the Apostle Paul and his team of people that understood the gospel and had embraced it were sent to tell these people who Jesus was. And he sat down with them and explained sin and judgment, condemnation. He explained the work, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the identity of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. And you know what it says? And she responded. How did she respond? We know. We've been studying it long enough that he said, if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. That's how she responded. She believed upon Jesus Christ for, her, for the forgiveness of her sins. She believed that He was and is the Savior of the world. She believed that He died on the cross for her sins. She believed that God rose Him from the dead three days later, fulfilling prophecy and indicating He has a power over death and the power over sin and that He has the ability to give eternal life to those who receive Him. She responded to the words and she was born again and she was truly liberated at that time and that time only. We know she was because she was baptized. There is always evidence of a person who's been born again. The first thing that she did is throughout the book of Acts is, hey, what am I supposed to do now? I said, be baptized. Why baptism? Public profession of faith. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. But with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, with his mouth he confesses what? Resulting in salvation. There is no way that any person who can come into a personal relationship with the God of the universe through faith in Christ and is born again cannot help but share that good news with people in our lives. Those who do not, we've got to ask ourselves a very difficult question. Are we truly in the faith? Don't be deceived because you said a prayer, you wrote something down or whatever it is. Do you have evidence in your life that you are born again? The evidence is what? Obedience to God. First thing she said was, what am I supposed to do now? Be baptized. Well, we're right here by the river. Why not? That's what the Ethiopian eunuch said. What will stop me now from being baptized? Nothing. Just your willingness. Well, let's go. Public profession of faith. I don't care. I've received Christ as my Savior and I want everybody to know it. And I don't care who doesn't like it. Boink, don't. Up. Oh, here we go. What else you do? Then she was very hospitable. Another sign of a person who has been born again is a person who is hospitable. Particularly hospitable to strangers so that others can see the love of God in your home and in your family. We live in a world where families are falling apart all the time. When you bring strangers into your home or others into your home and they see the love of God in Christ in your family and in your marriage and with your children and in your household, man, it is a strong testimony to what it means to be born again. She was hospitable. 
And it was important in those days, you know, Diotrephes in Third John was rebuked by John because he wasn't hospitable. He wouldn't allow people into his home, and he tried to prevent others who were going to allow the disciples to stay with him not to open their homes to him. It was important to be hospitable because the only thing that were out there as far as inns were concerned, or holiday inns, or motel sixes, or quality inns, or whatever it was, there wasn't any of those. They were all just brothels, man, that were, you know, dirty, just disgusting behavior took place, and it was, it was the only place that you could ever stay. And so it was important for Christians to take people into their homes to protect them from that kind of environment. And that's exactly what they did. She was hospitable. She said, hey, you know, if, if we've demonstrated faith in our Lord, won't you come and stay with us? And it tells you the size of the house she had because she had room for him. This lady had everything the world had to offer and nothing until she came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. She was born again. And it was evidenced by the fact she was willing to be baptized, to publicly profess her faith. It was evidenced that she was hospitable in her relationship to other people. Her hospitality gave proof she was truly a liberated woman. And as we look at all these things, we're now introduced to a woman, by contrast, who was what we call an enslaved woman. She was an enslaved woman. And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer in verse 16, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This person that we're told had a python spirit or a Pythian spirit. We're told through Greek mythology that a python spirit had to do with the fact that, you know, there was a python that guarded the oracle of Delphi. And Apollo at one point killed this python and the spirit of the snake would come back and inhabit people and give them a view of the future for Apollo was one who could prophesy about the future according to Greek mythology. We're told that this woman had a spirit of divination or a python or Pythian spirit living within her. And she was oppressed and being used by Satan as well as being used by her earthly masters. She was oppressed by this relationship that she had. And as we look at this, it was important to note that like the Lord Jesus Christ, as she was going and notice what she was doing, and it says that she was following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. You go, wow, well, she was telling the truth. But you know what? Jesus never had any interest in being publicized by Satan or demons. And anytime they tried to, he would rebuke them. And Paul, just like his master, said, you know what? We don't need you to help our cause because all you'll do is you'll tell the truth one minute so that you can deceive people the next. You're a liar from the beginning. Satan has always been a liar and a murderer. He's always called into question the things of God. And Paul was greatly annoyed that this demon was going around announcing that they were the servants of the Most High God, telling people the way of salvation. He was greatly annoyed by it. And he was annoyed by it because she was being used by Satan. He was annoyed by what he saw because she wasn't a liberated woman. She was, he was annoyed because she was being used by her earthly masters to make a fortune for them and they didn't care what kind of oppression that she was under. He was greatly annoyed. And in a very relevant, practical way, I will say that I am greatly annoyed by so-called women's movements that have not liberated women at all, but through the lies of such movements have kept women oppressed by sin. And what I mean is very simple. Any movement that would promote sexual immorality as liberating is a lie from the pit of hell. Sexual immorality results in spiritual defeat, emotional devastation, and physical disease. Nothing good comes out of sin. And to promote that women can somehow be as promiscuous as men have been is an ignorance of both truths. Number one, it is equally wrong for men to be sexually immoral as it is for women to be sexually immoral. The same consequences are true. Spiritual defeat, emotional devastation, and physical disease. The promotion of a woman's right to choose to terminate or kill her child does not liberate at all but adds guilt upon the guilt of sexual immorality. And all you've got to do is ask any woman who has made that choice whether she has been freed up or led down a further street or road of oppression and guilt. Any movement that would promote a unisex world that doesn't appreciate nor respect God-ordained gender differences is not liberating to women who are treated by men now as just one of the boys. The Bible holds women in high esteem. Paul was eager to share the gospel with women who were assembled seeking God. 
because God places a high value on all human life. That all of us have been created in the image and likeness of God and that image and likeness was broken by sin. But God loves all people, regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of economic standing. God loves the world and sent His Son into the world so that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That is not a chauvinistic message that is designed to oppress women further. It is designed to free people and liberate them from sin and its consequences. Paul was greatly annoyed at the abuse this woman was experiencing. And he cried out, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, come out from her. And she was freed from the oppression of the demon that possessed her. But let me tell you something in closing. If she didn't come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that freeing, that liberation from that demon that possessed her was temporary and that's all that it was. For only the Lord Jesus Christ can truly liberate a person from sin and its consequences. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. These two women typify all of humanity. Everyone is either liberated by Jesus Christ are enslaved by Satan. The only path to freedom is that followed by Lydia. She was a seeker of God. She listened to the gospel, and having had a heart opened by the Lord himself, she responded to the saving message. What must I do to be saved? Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Jeremiah 29, 13, in closing, we read these words. You will seek me, and you will find me, when you search me with all your heart. Perhaps you're here today, and you haven't found God, because you're looking for an excuse instead of true liberation. The Bible says, if you seek him today, in this very place, that you will find him, for he is not far from you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the picture that we see of a truly liberated woman, hopefully two truly liberated women, as they responded with, by grace through faith to the word of God. Lord, we thank you that no matter what our social standing, no matter what our economic position, our gender or race, that you tell us that if we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that we shall be saved. And that through your word, the truth of the word of God, that we will be free indeed, for your word is truth. And we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.